Hello, hello. Welcome to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast where my goal is to give you useful and practical information to help you along your parenting journey. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. Today's episode covers a really important topic, choking hazards in children. I feel lucky because here with me today is the fantastic Dr. Allie Strocker. Dr. Strocker is an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and she sees firsthand what commonly causes choking episodes in children. In this episode, she gives really useful advice to parents on what we can do to prevent choking altogether. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, Allie Strocker, to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's good to be back. So for those of you who are listening, Allie did an episode not that long ago all about protecting our ears over the summer. So if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend you go back and take a listen. Um, today, I'm really excited because we're going to have a conversation about what a lot of parents fear, and that is choking, children and choking. And we're going to talk about what choking hazards are and how to prevent them. And I think this will be a really helpful episode. So so first, um, Dr. Strocker, tell me, tell me, do you have a lot of experience around choking? Yeah, so um, actually, I, I reached out to you because I thought this was actually a really important thing. And I had two patients in the last two months who had a choking incident, and it's not the typical choking incident, and we'll, we'll touch on those too, but where the child couldn't breathe. These are kids who are eating, otherwise seem fine, do a little gagging and choking, and then we're fine, and then subsequently end up having wheezing and coughing. And what happens is they actually aspirate it. So there's choking where it blocks your airway, and there's things where they actually get sucked in and they're breathed into the lungs. And so they're actually sitting in the bronchi, the tubes that go into the lungs. So yes, as a pediatric ENT, we see this, unfortunately, we see this pretty frequently. So first, starting with the blocking of the airway, can you tell us what are the typical foods that might cause blocking of the airway so that parents are aware? Yeah. So these are the things that we've probably heard about where um, hot dogs, right? You don't, want, you don't want to cut hot dogs into those perfect little rounds because that's the perfect size to completely block the top of the trachea, the big air pipe. Um, same thing with grapes. A, a whole grape in a little kid who's, let's say, two years, three years old will sit perfectly there and block and they won't be able to breathe. This is when you're, the child's going to actually like be totally in their throat. They're choking. They can't breathe. They can't talk. You're going to have to try and get that evacuated by a Heimlich. So those are those, those kind of foods. So um, hot dogs, grapes, maybe a carrot also cut in a ring. Um, and it's a lot of this is because kids don't have the ability to control the food in the mouth like we do. So they're chewing, maybe they don't, they get distracted, they laugh, something happens, and they kind of inhale that moment and those foods will lodge and they will block the whole airway. I usually tell parents who to think about foods that can't get, that aren't dissolvable by saliva. And those are always foods to keep in mind. So like a hard candy, a, you know, like a big chunk of a meat, as you mentioned, raw vegetables, hot dogs, grapes, right. absolutely. Um, yeah, that's that, that's exactly it. And, and those foods can be given, you just have to cut them so that they're not the, the shape of the airway. So you don't want that perfect circle, that perfect ring. So when you cut your grapes, you want to cut them lengthwise. When they're really little, maybe even to spears, like half and a half again, you know, so a quarter of a, a grape. Um, hot dog, same thing. You don't want it to be a little round. This way, you want it to be a little round. You want it to be um, into like almost like a, cut that into half again. So they're, they're against strips. So if, God forbid, they choke, it's more likely to go down the esophagus. So as, as it won't get blocking the whole airway. Okay. So any food that is not dissolvable that might perfectly block the airway, really imperative that we cut those foods into pieces before serving. That makes sense. 
Right. Yeah. Like spears. Spears are a lot better because they're, they're like, like long pieces. And then kids have a better chance of holding that, breaking up what they can eat and chewing and not get a big piece that's going to lodge in their airway. So now to mention aspiration, what you brought up earlier, what kind of foods should parents be concerned with when it comes to aspiration? And do you have any advice on how to avoid this happening? Yeah. So these are the things that we see a lot in the pediatric ENT world. Um, so these are things typically like nuts and seeds. Now, as a pediatrician, I'm sure you advise your patients that it is important for kids to be exposed to nuts because of, of allergy risk. The safe way to do that is creamy, creamy, creamy nut butters, almond butter, peanut butter. You know, some of your children have an allergy things. Those are great. They're smooth. They're not going to choke on them, but it's the solid pieces of nuts. So I wouldn't even on a little kid give them a chunky peanut butter because there's little pieces of nuts in there. I've had a patient eat a Snickers bar, again, small piece of nut in there. And even though there's caramel and everything else, that nut somehow will find its way down the airway. So we recommend not having solid nuts to believe it or not, five years old. Um, And the reason is at that age, they're better able to control their chewing, their swallowing, and it's less likely to get trapped um, and slip down into the airway. Um, What happens with nuts in particular, and same with seeds, there's a that oily coating on the outside. That's what makes how we get all the different oils that we use. Those oils make the nut the perfect thing to slip into the airway. So the child's eating, maybe chokes, maybe inhales, laughs. And then instead of going down to the esophagus, that little bit of nut goes, slips down into the, into the airway, into the trachea, down the bronchus, and it will block the lungs. So I think this is so important that you bring this up because we're, you're right, we are getting sort of two almost contradictory pieces of medical advice because we're telling a lot of parents to make sure they introduce, you know, a peanut product from a very early of age. Now it's recommended between four and six months of age. Um, but you're right. I think it's so important that we distinguish what kind of peanut butter or peanut product we're offering. Definitely. I and mean, I started my daughter at an early age with you know, some peanut butter mixed into her oatmeal or mixed into her yogurt. And I agree, it's great for an allergy standpoint, but I was very, very careful. And I have been very careful with her not to have solid bits of nuts because of this risk. Um, Right. So giving the peanut product uh, as a form of preventing peanut allergies, but not giving whole peanuts. So we (laughs) don't get aspiration. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, Now, are there any other foods that parents should avoid until five years old, or is it just peanuts and nut products? Popcorn. Popcorn's another one. Um, popcorn, again, same thing. Those kernels have that slippery oil. They can slip down. When a child's maybe around three or four, if you're careful, like it's my daughter now is almost four. She likes some popcorn. I make sure the pieces I give her are totally popped, that there are no solid kernels in there. And I also make sure that my daughter is sitting still and eating. Kids, unfortunately, and she does this for a lot of other things, will move around when they're eating. And I tell her when there's things that I have to have her be careful to eat, you have them sit down. It's a very conscientious eating where they're sitting and they're focusing on chewing and not getting distracted. Um, But um, it's funny, after these experiences, I've told her, sorry, no nuts until you're five because I don't want her to have to go through this. Absolutely. No, I think that's a great point to reiterate that kids, it's really important that they sit when they eat, that they're not, you know, running and eating or walking and eating if possible. Right. Um, so do you, do you now as an ENT, what do you do when you notice that there's a peanut in the lungs? Can you, can you fix it and how do you fix it? Yeah. So, I mean, typically this is the other difference is like we talked about those big pieces of foods that are hard to dissolve. 
those kids will present very quickly, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're still tired choking. Hopefully you or somebody else knows to, how to do the Heimlich and other ways of evacuating it. This is, you know, there are a lot of courses that parents can take to learn these things. Um, and those have to be, you know, evacuated quickly. The child who chokes on a peanut or aspirates a peanut, it goes down into their airway. It looks very, very different. So they'll cough. And both the patients I saw, parents were not that alarmed with the choking. They were eating. They, were, they coughed. One child had some almonds over yogurt. The other child had was eating chicken, but I'm sure there was maybe cashew chicken because that's what was down in his airway. Um, they coughed. Mom seemed to have helped him clear it. He cleared it. They, they thought, okay, everything's fine. And then... These kind of kids tend to present a little bit later. So all of a sudden, a child who doesn't have asthma is now wheezing or coughing, at, coughing during the day, coughing at night. Um, they could look fine. I mean, both kids were kind of were talking to me in the in the office, um, but you kind of hear a little something in their breathing. And typically in my office, I when I listen to them, I can I sort of start the picture starts to come together. Right? They had this little choking event. Is it got wheezing? They're not responding to the usual nebulizers and stuff that are given to help kids who are wheezing. When you listen, when I listen very carefully, one side usually is a little bit softer. I don't hear the breath sounds moving as well. And that's when I usually have my suspicions. And I have to have the conversation with the parents that in order to treat this, I have to put the child under anesthesia. And um, we have long metal tubes that when the child's sleeping, go in through the mouth, let me go down into the trachea. And uh, with the, using a lot of visualization, different um, cameras and whatnot and, and grabbers, I believe a special kind of grabbers, take the pieces of the nut out of the bronchus. Um, and it's, it's pretty remarkable because right away the, the, the air starts flowing again into that, into that lung space. It's amazing. You really saved the day. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any advice? So a lot of kids, they, they choke really easily when they're first learning how to eat. They, mm -hmm. they gag. And I always tell parents, this is actually really helpful reflex because we want them to protect their airway. So it's good that they have an overly sensitive gag reflex. Um, but I, I can't tell if that's really helping parents. They still get nervous when their kids are eating. So do you have any general advice for parents on how to advance solid foods, how to go from purees and then to move yeah. on to more solid forms of foods? Um, I, so I agree with you. I think babies and young children have a very sensitive gag reflex, and I agree. It's their body's way of sort of protecting them from choking. Um, so as long as you're giving children soup, foods that you know are safe for them, right? So you're not going to give those raw veggies um, to a little one who doesn't have enough teeth. You sort of, again, it's very conscientious eating. So they're sitting in a high chair, sitting properly. You're watching. This is not a time to be doing 15 other things. Um, and you and you present the foods, and if they if they gag, you actually give them a moment to to gag and and bring the food out. I've unfortunately seen seen other instances where I've had to go to the operating room, um, where a parent or grandparent, in all good intentions, tries to help the child who's gagging and ends up pushing the food down, um, and now then the food get actually gets stuck. Um, most of the time, that strong gag reflex, the baby will kind of push it out with their tongue or even vomit it out and clears it out. So. Unless the child gets into distress, where they, obviously they can't breathe, and that's when you can step in with a Heimlich. Otherwise, take a breath, watch them. If they're if they're gagging and but still breathing and and able to vocalize, they're probably okay. Let them do it on their own. They probably will clear it. Um, and again, that's the reason to make sure that we're only giving safe foods. If a child's gagging and happened to have a piece of nut in there, that little nut will find its way down into the airway, unfortunately. So that's why it's very important to make sure you keep those foods away from them. So can we talk about 
baby led weaning. I'm curious what your thoughts are as yeah. a pediatric ENT. There's this movement to feed <laughs> kids, young kids, um, whole vegetables and um, other solid foods. What are your, what are your thoughts? This is a very funny question. So prior to having my own daughter, I was against the idea of baby led weaning. Um, my partner scared me. He's like, Oh, I read this, you know, story of baby led weaning. And he was actually, he was a expert witness and the child choked on a banana and all this stuff. So I was petrified of it until I had my own daughter who refused to eat purees. And I would go through all the effort of mashing food and mixing food and oatmeal and child would have like two bites and she was just done and then wanted everything from my plate. So I did some very quick learning <laughs> on baby led weaning and, and actually that's how she ate. And she never, I've been mean, probably after first few purees was done and by seven, eight months was just doing baby led weaning. Um, so I think it is, I think it is actually valuable. I actually think it's probably how most of the rest of the world feeds their babies where baby food in jars is not so readily accessible. Um, I'm sure they do mash foods as well, but um, it is important to give safe food. So actually the weird thing with baby led weaning is you don't have these microscopic little pieces. You actually let them kind of, again, assuming it's like a banana or something soft, you actually let them break off the, as much as they can. And it's very surprising, but they, for the most part, they know what to take. So again, but it's it, when we were doing this and she was little, very, very conscientious, not, no distractions. I was sitting there right with her. And we were very careful giving food, but she, you know, she just wanted to eat what I was eating. So a little piece of cooked, cooked chicken that she could kind of hold in her hand and manipulate her, her teeth, her little teeth in her mouth. And she managed, and there was some gagging, and she would bring up some food. And again, we'd watch her, let her do it, spit it out. Um, but for the most part, she learned very, very quickly. I have to say that's not the answer that I was expecting you to say, because I, I, I always assume like the specialist that, you know, see the worst things that experience choking would be the most overprotective. Um, but I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised that you said the opposite. Well, I, again, I started like it had to be purees and then my child taught me, she's, she's kind of that child anyhow, so that she had her own ways of doing things. And, um, and so I just was very careful and just make sure, you know, a lot of it was, for example, cooked, cooked asparagus. It was one of her favorite first foods and she would take that spear and she would just kind of gnaw on it and get the flavors. And, um, she didn't want me to mash the avocados. She actually wanted a piece of avocado, but that was, I figured that's a soft food and she can manipulate it. And again, watching her, it, it just did definitely took a lot of close observation. Um, and you really can't just have somebody kind of haphazardly feeding the child. So, and then you do this while staying away from those choking hazards that we talked about yes. before. Yes. <laughs> that is, that is the, the most important thing. So even like giving a piece of chicken, it's not a big, you know, it's a big enough piece of chicken that they can pick up, but not so big that it would block their airway. I get nervous when I talk about raw vegetables when it comes to baby led weaning. That's the yeah. part that I take issue with is that I, makes me uncomfortable to see a baby gnawing on a, on a raw carrot, but. Yeah. I mean, I think once they have, yeah, once they have sort of enough teeth that they can actually gnaw on it, right. You're not gonna, I mean, before then it probably wouldn't matter anyhow, but again, kind of watching them and again, you, you, you can't look away. <laughs> so they're, they're gnawing and you see, usually they break off really, really small pieces, very tiny pieces. Um, and in the beginning, honestly, most of it's cooked. So it was a lot more cooked vegetables um, and cooked things that were soft. Um, but yeah, as they, as they start to get some teeth, it does take a little bit of, of you know, breath holding and being calm. And um, I have to say it was a lot easier actually than having to deal with the purees because it was literally wherever we went, I just found foods that were soft enough for her to eat and she would do it. So. I, I honestly don't blame kids that don't like purees. I mean, I know myself, 
they, I don't find them very interesting. So I can right. see why they'd want to move quickly to real food. Right. And I think they, you know, very quickly, but once babies get to that point, they see us eating and, and they want it. I mean, in, in my daughter's uh, defense, when this all started, we were traveling in Europe and um, I was eating amazing pastas and I don't think she wanted the, the baby food. She wanted, she wanted what I was eating and she right. had her first taste of, of uh, Italian truffle pasta at seven months. So. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like a, you know, puree compared to a delicious pasta meal makes sense why they have that preference. And I'm, I'm just thinking like what, what I find so interesting about this conversation is that it gives parents more to think about if like that we can't assume that a cough is from asthma or a cold or from allergies, that it's also important to keep in mind that it's possible that choking may be the culprit. You know, obviously, if you're, I don't want every child who has, here's a child, cough, every parent to think, oh, my child's coughing. It's got to be, you know, they aspirate on something or they have wheezing now. You know, children do have asthma and those things. So, you know, if your child has typically wheezing after a cold, that's probably what it is. It's probably asthma. Um, however, if your child never has had wheezing after a cold, and then now son has wheezing, and and if you start to processing, oh well, you know we they did kind of there was those nuts that were out, and I don't think he had any or she had any, but maybe they did. That's when you want to start to put those two together. You know that there's there might be something going on there, or the child who just doesn't really respond. Both of my patients and the other patients I've seen just don't typically respond to the typical asthma medication. So they, yeah, maybe the cough gets a little bit better, the wheezing gets a little bit better, but it's it's not going away. And it's something that we always have to kind of keep in the back of our heads is when, the, when everything doesn't add up the way it normally should. You must have some great stories. Over, oh, yes. Over the years. <laughs> yes. yes. A lot of uh, trying times in the operating room is definitely one of the more stressful things that we do. Um, it's very gratifying once we clear the, the nut. Um, but it's definitely one of those more stressful moments in the operating room for us. Do you have any recommendations where parents can take a Heimlich course or a CPR course? Yeah. So I, when my daughter was actually, she was, I was still pregnant with my daughter. I did a course called, um, I think it says save a little life or something was the name of the course. Um, and obviously I'm familiar with CPR and, and those sort of things being in medicine, but Obviously, my husband wasn't, and my the rest of my family wasn't. It was important. It was actually important to me not only to have you know, both mom and dad there, but also grandparents um, who would be potentially watching the children as well. So um, that was one particular course. They were great. They came. They came, you could get a group together, and they come out to your house, and they bring the dolls, and they teach you everything about resuscitation. Um, and it was also good because they taught you things, for example, like about burn injuries, things that maybe I didn't even realize about how you know your your child touches something that's hot. How do you deal with that? Um, and if, if you can't find that course, um, which, although they are local, there's certainly some others. If you just, um, I'm sure if they Google, you know, CPR courses for parents, I'm sure they'll get a few choices there. Yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll make sure to put a link to a online CPR class below in the description. <laughs> um, so any, any other words of wisdom or any other take home points for parents? I think you've got some great, I think there's been some great information given, um, for parents to think about that are listening. Yeah. Think? I mean, I think just. We stress a lot. Eating is something serious. It's not something that we just take lightly. So, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm guilty of it. My daughter doesn't like to sit still during dinner time, um, but really trying to work to you know being at the table, sitting, being you know conscientious with our with our eating, um, 
making sure we avoid those things that are not safe for kids to eat when they're little. So those big, hard, solid pieces of food till they have a really good mouth, you know, bunch of teeth in their mouth, able to control it. And those nuts wait till, you know, five years old, those solid pieces of nuts. Cause you know, it's, it's heartbreaking when I have to sell parents, like this is what we have to do. And thankfully on the other end, I got to say, we, we did it. Your child's great. They're going to go home in a little bit. Um, but it's, it's not an easy conversation. So I'd much, I'd much be, ha- I mean, much happier if pay, uh, if, to avoid this kind of thing in the future. The other thing we didn't sort of mention is kids also aspirate on toys every once in a while. I've had that happen. I had a, did have a patient who had aspirated a piece of Lego. So um, those things can happen as well. So if you have older children in the house and you have a little one, it's one of those things, right, where you have the toys that they have to play in a separate area away from the little one because little kids will see these things and they don't know and they'll They'll eat them and inhale them and either aspirate them or get stuck in their esophagus, the other place where we have to go take things out. So another big one to mention, just so parents are aware, are latex balloons. A lot of kids yes. will put balloons in their mouth and then they get pieces of latex in their mouth and they and it's a it's an important choking hazard to be aware that's of. That's a that's a particularly bad one because those are very hard to clear and, and the child actually unfortunately can die from not being, you know, from asphyxiation, not being able to breathe. Um wow. One other one we should touch on is coins. Um, those don't get those don't get stuck typically. They they will pass the trachea. They will not go down, but they get stuck in the esophagus. So now you have a child who has a hard time eating. Now all of a sudden, like there's some coins. They're shiny, right? These little usually again little kids put them in their mouths, and then all of a sudden they're not eating very well, or maybe they're drooling. And they'll same sort of thing. They usually present to the emergency room. We'll get an x-ray and there'll be a coin just sitting right here in the lowest part of the neck. Um, and they also need a trip to the operating press to go in and, and take those out of the esophagus. So um, I know when my daughter was little, I told my husband, you're, you cannot leave your change out on the counter or out on a table. They, it has to go you know, put into a jar for your child if you have a little piggy bank or whatever, or into, you know, in the car in a, a secure spot where kids are not going to get it um, because that's another thing. I'm so glad that you mentioned coins because that happens all the time. And I always tell parents that as long as they're acting normally, you know, feeding normally, talking normally, that we just assume it's past. But it's those instances that you mentioned, if they're not feeding well, or they seem bothered that we refer to the emergency department or an ENT. Definitely. Yeah. The, the you know, the kids that usually at work get stuck are, are usually under three. It's rare. The kids that has over three and it's stuck. It's usually like a big coin, like a quarter or silver dollar, which has happened occasionally. But yeah, the, it's the little ones who even a penny in a, in a little child, a penny can get stuck there and yeah, they won't eat very well. They're drooling. They just seem a little uncomfortable. Um, but you're right. The older kid, four or five years old who puts some money in their mouth, um, that usually will pass into the stomach and you, you wait a couple of days and it comes out the other end. <laughs> I know. I, I, I always tell people if I added up all the coins that I've heard over the years that people have swallowed, I'd probably have enough to pay for a nice date night. When I was back at Children's, you know, we used to have like a collection of how much money we would take out. Sometimes there'd be two pennies down there. Sometimes it would be a nickel. Um, it always looks bigger than it really is, but, um, oh yeah, there, it was, it's something that's very, very routine that we see a lot over there, but it's something that's pretty easy for parents to prevent. Again, yes, we got little ones in the house, get a, get a little piggy bank. You'll be surprised how much money ends up in there after a while. And you're keeping your, your little ones safe from uh, potentially putting a, in, putting a coin into their mouth and having it get stuck in the esophagus. 
That's why I so appreciate this conversation because I think choking is something that parents worry a lot about, but it is 100% preventable. So I think it's really great to talk about all of these uh, precautions because I think it can make a big difference. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your words of wisdom. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be back. And I just really felt it was important to share this with your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. A big thank you to Dr. Strocker for joining this week's podcast. If you know anyone who would benefit from this conversation, please pass it along. As the saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Also, if you could take the time to rate, review, and subscribe to Ask Dr. Jessica, I would be so appreciative as your support is what helps this podcast grow. Thank you and see you next Monday.